Welcome back everyone to R2Cast number 167. A couple of episodes ago was the first of series four. Um the third yeah, the fourth year, sorry, of, of R2Cast, which is quite exciting. Um and the last episode we had there was with Gunnar Garforce. Now Gunnar has been to every country on the planet twice. He's a nine-time world record holder. Um, and yeah, just kind of one of those weird episodes where I'm like, how, how have I met this person? Um, and the next episode we'll have after today is with Polly Hilton. Polly is one of the Nuffield cohort that I'm part of, which we must be getting through at this stage. I generally don't know how many we've had. I should probably go back and count and see how many we've had. But Polly's looking into cider and creating a market for cider in this country, um, which is, is pretty interesting there as well. Um, and along the line of Nuffield, along the line of that sort of Nuffield cohort that we're sort of trying to get through, I think we've got about six left, uh, so we're getting through it quite well, is um, a man I spent quite a bit of time with on our um, our first day at uh, the sort of, the what do you call it, the convention centre of, of Nuffield this year, when we were, were sort of welcomed in, if you will, um, which was really good, and uh, we spoke about a lot of things, about video editing, about uh, about goats, about veterinary, about everything, because we sat together with uh, with one other and Rachel for about um, for about eight hours. Uh, and that guest today, who, whose story we'll get into, is Cormac White. Cormac, would you like to say hello? Uh, hello, everyone. How you doing? Just before we get started with another episode of the R2 cast, I would like to thank our primary sponsors, Howden Rural, formerly known as A-Plan Rural. Howden are heavily involved in the social media scene in the ag space with over 100,000 followers on Instagram. They use this following to host social media takeovers with farmers throughout the country to showcase their stories, as well as posting to their rural community blog with further articles about these people in the sector. On top of this, they like to support initiatives that are championing the British agricultural industry, such as myself. So thank you to Howden Rural for that. Very, I'm sure I'm looking forward to this, man. It was it was good to sit and chat about uh, about stuff at that point, but it was so intense. Like I felt you never actually really it was always, oh, you've got 10 minutes to chat, and then that 10 minutes was cut to four minutes once you got your drink and then it was ready to go again. But um it'll be quite good to sort of have a chat for for a bit of time and, and hear the story. But just for the for the listeners, um Cormac, could you give us sort of a bit of a brief background as to who Cormac is. What's your story? From, you know, what was what was a sort of young Cormac up to? What was he up to? <laughs> well, what's a young Cormac? I don't think you want to, you want to know a young Cormac, really. <laughs> um, so my name is Cormac White. Um, I'm actually originally from Belfast, um, from bang in the middle of Belfast. You could walk to the city hall about 10 minutes from my house. Um, and yeah, just growing up... Uh, Basically, I wanted to be a jockey until I was like four year old, and then my man asked me I was too big. So <laughs> that was the next best thing. Um, so yeah, I just went down that path. Um, I guess coming from a background, I came from education was something that was always really valued and pushed and promoted. Is that's kind of yeah, that was that was the way you get on in the world, really. And um, so yeah, following path towards veterinary, I guess always thinking. Traditionally, originally, just like looking at mixed practice and stuff like that. Um, have a, a, a bit of love for horses, madly as well. So, you know, there was there was a bit of a notion that yeah, I'd do a bit of that as well. Um, but I think ultimately, always always knew I'd end up kind of farm on or large side of things. Um, and basically qualified in Dublin twenty fifteen. Um, and decided uh needed to go. Do something a bit elsewhere. I uh, went to Egypt originally um, to practice for a bit and um, did work for an equine charity up there. 
Um, and then I went out to practice in New Zealand um, in mixed practice up in the, the North Island, the east coast of the North Island. Um, and then, yeah, had a, yeah, veterinary in your first few years is a, a, a real learning curve. Um, and when you're, when you're in the sticks in the middle of nowhere, on the other side of the world, it can be an even steeper learning curve. Um, so yeah, it was, it was really, really, you know, intriguing and, and and taught me a lot in a, in a short space of time. Um, I texted my mates back home, like in Belfast, when I was there at a discussion, dairy discussion group meeting, talking about growing turnips. And if you hear the voices of boys from Belfast, when you're when you're telling them you're sitting learning about growing turnips, they, they think you're absolutely mental. Um, so yeah, learned quite a lot in a, in a short space of time. And then, yeah, went traveling for a bit after that, as I was kind of, Thinking about what I was going to do next, used my, my money from bit from New Zealand to faff around the place for a bit, and uh, worked even managing a hostel in the jungle in Guatemala for about eight months, um, which is which is a good laugh, um, and that's where I met my now partner, and we ended up just yeah happening about upon Somerset in the south of England, and uh, I've been working as a, a farm vet here ever since, um pretty focused on small ruminants side of things, sheep, goats, um, but also on grazing. Um, very passionate about getting the most from forage um, and then that being around grazing discussion group for some dairies, uh, a couple of sheep discussion groups as well, um, and do a little bit of um, sheep and goat consultancy work a uh, long way across the south of England. Um, but yeah, that's the bare bones of it. The day to day, there was pulling and dragging uh, as far as that is. It's here to, like, there's there's a lot to unpick there. I mean, it feels like you've went around everything. Um, quite, quite good to delve in a wee bit deeper into some bits there. But just one thing I always like to ask folk that have that have got into veterinary. Well, two things really. Is first off, what what made you think right? This is this is it. This is what I want to do. And then secondly, can you tell us about vet school? Because it just seems so intense. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. Like, uh, I, it was like I have stubbornness that cannot be beaten out of me. And I think when I turned around to my dad, I was like four or five, and says I will be a vet. I was determined, even though it, it, at times it seemed delusional. Um, I was de- determined to do it. Um, I do remember. Uh, my granda had my granda used to keep a few ponies, and uh, I remember the old vet coming out to see the set bowl at the time. Um, and I just thought, you know what, it just seemed like it just seems like an interesting job. And so far as you, I would just like to quickly interrupt the show for a minute to give you some extra information about our primary sponsors, Howden Rural, the new name for A Plan Rural. Howden Rural provide bespoke insurance cover for farms and estates. This could be for anything from tractors and machinery to a new exciting diversification venture. Be sure to check out Howden Rural today. You're out and about, but you're challenging yourself intellectually at the same time. Um, and, and you just get to meet a lot of characters. Um, I mean, same practice where I saw practice, um, right? So I saw a lot of practice in the West Ireland, uh, like where my, some of my family be originally from as well, and like some of the characters you meet on a day to day basis. You know, we used to go out to the islands off the west coast, and like all the farmers would go out there for a whole day just cutting bullocks and cutting foals and stuff like that, castrating dogs and back. 
yeah, lot, um, trucks and stuff like that. And then you basically go into the pub and have a piss up with them for the evening. I mean, you get the next boat there back the next day. I don't know. It just had a had a certain yeah thing to it that drew me to it. Um, that school. I mean, I think people <laughs> honestly. <laughs> I don't, I don't know, like, I, don't, I didn't find it that intense. I found, I found it intense that you were hanging around a lot of people all doing Bethany at the same time sometimes. <laughs> um, I made a, I made a purpose, purposeful commitment to not live uh, with that student. So I used to live with mates from doing all sorts, uh, you know, business, agriculture, um, accountancy, forestry, everything and anything. Um, just, just to kind of yeah, to, to have a break from it all. Um, but actually, honestly, the first couple of years were a bit of a mad piss up, really. Um, I actually, funny story on that is uh, actually my second year, I ended up not attending a single lecture. Um, decided to get into home brewing um, and brewed, <laughs> brewed, brewed my own kind of concoction in a bathtub and was selling it at the uni. Uh, which, yeah, and it led, 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 led to me. Uh, Let's just say not attempting enough exams, um. But yeah, got, got through it in the end. Um, actually, we had a we had a house party one time. One of the Irish Dragons Den showed up to, um, and he actually said that homebrew was a good idea. But I think he was he was three sheets to the wind. So I don't know if he, if he really knew what he was talking about at that stage. Um, but yeah, as as it went on, it definitely got more intense. And like, it's a lot of it's a lot of weeks of your life, and it's a lot of time outside of university and I think that's one aspect of that and, and you know looking at what I'm doing from part of Snuffield and sort of encouraging people from outside the industry in I think, I think that it does need to look at itself a wee bit and make itself a wee bit more accessible because some of that outside of uni time can be quite costly um, to students and, and quite, can be quite prohibitive to, to people from certain backgrounds so yeah I think I think it, yeah that that was the most intense part of it. If I'm honest with you, yeah, I, th- I thought Polly was the uh, the brewer in our group, not yourself. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that was. Yeah, I was. I was. Yeah, I won't even tell you the recipe. I, I, don't, I don't think I'd make it again. I don't think I'd drink it again. <laughs> <laughs> Cheap drink for the students, though. As you hear, Um. I always like to hear about about New Zealand and places people have been. I've, I'll, New Zealand seems to be in a lot of folks' list. Uh, so yeah, tell us about New Zealand, and then we'll get into Egypt because that's a complete change. To, to our, yeah, tell us about New Zealand. Um, uh, New Zealand was, I guess, it wasn't what I expected. Um, is, is the real honest answer? Um, where I went to live was like. You know, it was it was quite a uh, it was quite a sushi proprietor in New Zealand on the east coast of the North Island that predominantly sheep and beef, um, really, really remote. And like I always thought Ireland had remote places, but like you know, you're talking like two hours to the nearest large town. Um, like the town I was in had like just under two thousand people, but like it, you know, it was tiny. Um and yeah, like driving on a day to day for farm calls, like you could go to a cabin two hours away. It was madness, like, and it was up mountains and everything. And the scenery is absolutely spectacular. Um, but I think what what was what I didn't expect was I think sometimes I think New Zealand is kind of portrayed as this kind of um, I I guess you know quite idyllic country. Um, 
But I think what I saw was the reality that, you know, it, it has as bad, if, you know, in some areas, some, some really serious social problems um, and challenges. Um, I, yeah, I think it was, yeah, it was a real, it was a real eye-opener. Um, but it, it was a breath of fresh air from a farming point of view because, you know, the fact that everyone had to be profitable on a day-to-day basis, um, there was a real business focus that I think has followed me throughout my career. I'll be honest, that, that I think if I hadn't have gone there, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have gone down the path of going and, and having, you know, such a business focus towards agriculture. It's, it's really focused me. I've, you know, I've gone away and learned a lot more financials that I think, as a vet, you don't traditionally do. Um, so yeah, I, I have a lot to thank it for, definitely. Um, and a, a lot of really bad experiences trying to ski as well, which, yeah, I'm Irish people are made for skiing. <laughs> and was, it, was that sort of the, the efficiency, the very business focus in New Zealand, is, is that a result of, of the, the subsidies being taken away in the 80s, 90s? Whatever it was, I, I I would I would say so. Yeah, I mean they had some real horror stories about other kind of happened. So it's essentially happened overnight, um, and you know that led to you know a massive mental health crisis, uh, led to emotional suicides associated yeah. with, with with everything that went on because it was really really quite drastic, um, but yeah, I think the lack of reliance on subsidy now you can really see, um the benefit in terms of how farms are operated. I mean, we, like, just to put a neighbour in perspective, we had a unit with 27,000 ewes that had five shepherds. Um, yeah. And, like, when you talk to people, like, here, that have, like, you know, 250 ewes or 300 ewes, and, you know, you're trying to talk about neighbour efficiency, like, it's not even in the same ball game. Um, I think it was really interesting. I don't know if you've come across, well, I assume you probably have, I haven't had it, but, Michael Blanche's whole uh, series on like timekeeping and everything like that, and looking at like what labour units were per use in Australia, New Zealand, and then comparing them to the to the UK and stuff like that, and, and you know the numbers, the difference in the numbers was just yeah, cataclysmic, really. Yeah, it's kind of mental. I mean, like, what's that? Two and a half thousand per person? No, five and a half no, thousand. Five and a half thousand. Five and a half thousand views per per labor unit, and like you know, a really to be fair, a really efficient, really well run farm. But the things were like things were timed and planned and prepared for accordingly. Uh, you know, it was managing the business rather than kind of being dictated to. Um, planning, preparing, um. You know, the old, the old adage, failure to prepare is preparing to fail. Um, they, you know, it was planned accordingly. It's so true, that saying. It's one of those, what, I used to hate sayings when I was younger because they just didn't <laughs> compute in my head. Um, but it's a good one, that, because it's so accurate. It's so accurate. Uh, yeah, you see some folk that sort of just try to breeze through life. And I think in a lot of ways I do breeze through life, but it's also like, it's also quite meticulous. And yeah, some folk just fall by the wayside, like 32 <laughs> Um, yeah, I've had Mike. I've had Michael on the podcast. Uh, oh, brilliant! Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm borderline. I think because the way I talk to you know encourage farmers to listen to the pasture pod, I think I'm borderline on super farm level. But uh, yeah, I just think I think 
you know, it's it's been really impressive. Some of the people you get some talk, a lot of them obviously now and I say nothing scholars. Um just really giving a voice to people who are doing something a bit different and just driving the industry forward. And you know, that you know, a lot of stuff on sort of timekeeping is something that I think really needs challenged within the industry and, and driven a bit more and definitely. Is um yeah, he's he's an interesting guy, and he's he's he's. I almost think when he's thinking, he doesn't realise how interesting what he's thinking is. Like you know, the things that he's considering, he's sort of conceptualising his head. Yeah, dear Michael, if you're listening, there you are. You need a new moderator on your Spotify. There's there's a man ready to do it. Yeah, I, I I I even think that the bad dad jokes with the dog are actually brilliant. So that's so tragic. I thought it was funny, but I generally I I we had. It was it was one of those ones I had a lot of people ask me to get Michael Blanche on and and no offense, Michael, but you know this is the truth. I didn't know who it was at the time. And uh, yeah, we just ripped the piss out of each other for an hour and a half. <laughs> was, I, back back. Um, I'd uh, I quite like to meet him in fairness. I'd probably meet him through Nuffield at some point now, but uh, yeah, good lad. I've I've got like a sort of podcasting group chat of all the agri casters I'm aware of and, and he's in there. Um yeah, as I said, you know, New Zealand's certainly one that's on the list for a lot of folk. Uh, I, I don't know if I'm just a weirdo in that it's not on my list because I'm like, well, I want to try something different. But the more you speak to people and all that, you're like, oh, geez, am I just messing out here? Like, should I put it on my list? Um, but one that's probably not on a lot of people's list, maybe for holidaying, but not for working, is Egypt. How did how did that come about? Why Egypt? And what was it like? Uh, I like, honestly, I think, Again, another stubborn one. I told my man that like I've always had a I've always had a massive interest in history and stuff like that as well. Like my levels were like you're really doing veterinary. Like I did like biology, chemistry, history, and Spanish. Um, people were like, what? 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 That's a combination on my heart. But um, I and I told my man again, stubbornness told my man when I was a young kid. I was like, oh, I really like going to Egypt when I'm like eighteen. I'd love to go on holiday there. Um, I never really got the opportunity. Um, and then, yeah, just when I qualified, I had the opportunity to go work there. And actually, at the time, I, I was too happy about it because the advice in the foreign office at the time was not to travel to Egypt. Just after the place I was going to, the, um, they actually had um, uh, fundamentalist bombs in town. <laughs> um, oh, jeez. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, so they, they had a bit of strife and like the tourist industry at the time was really under pressure and a lot of the, the horses and donkeys that I worked with, a lot of them were, um, you know, within the tourist industry in terms of like tours around um, pyramids, um, Valley of the Kings. Um, so basically where I was was Luxor, it was down in the south, so it's, it's close to where the Valley of the Kings is and then we've got Luxor Temple as well, which is a really old temple. We might have seen like... Um, they had uh, graffiti written by Alexander the Great's army um, written on the temple, which is just mental. That's how old it was. Um, so, yeah, it, I I loved it, if I'm honest with you. It was just the most amazing experience. I worked with some absolutely amazing Egyptian vets who taught me so much in such a short space of time. I saw diseases I'll hopefully touch wood never see again in my life. I saw foot and mouth as it was endemic. I saw lumpy skin disease. I saw rabies in donkeys. Um, I had a pretty brutal encounter where a German expat brought a dog in in the back of the car where it clearly visibly had 
rabies. Um, there's a couple of, you know, a couple of kind of rudimentary tests that you do in rabies in different countries. Um, and one of the other vets was about to get an examiner. I had to just tell her not to because I was like, you're just putting yourself at risk. Um, and yeah, that was a real emotional experience because the German lady was adamant that I needed to look at her dog and I said that I couldn't put in danger. Yeah, it was some really, really life-changing experiences that really, you just saw things that you wouldn't, yeah, wouldn't believe really. Um, and the hospitality, these had some people, just really amazing, amazing people. Um, you know, the amount of homes and all that we did too. Um, you know, people who had, you know, you know, not very much from a material point of view, um, you know, feeding you, hosting you, um, telling you about your lies and, and telling you about the world. Um, I was even sat on the train from Cairo to um, Luxor, which is like a 12 and a half hour train journey down the Nile. Um, and I remember like the whole family just sat around me because there, there was no one there was no tourists because of the performance of the vice at all, really, on the train. Um, and the whole family sat around me and told me about all their lies and were showing me pictures. And then they wanted to buy me food off the trolley. It was just, yeah, it's just a really spectacular experience. Would you go back to, to work? Um, yeah, yeah, actually. Yeah, I mean, I guess as our lives move on, I guess I've got other commitments and stuff like that. Uh, here now, but um, I'd, ha I'd happily help out and go back and work, or actually just go to learn. Like there's so much knowledge that I think, I again, for the field of looking into, you know, there's so much research done all over the world that I think sometimes in the Anglophone world we're inclined to stay within the realms of the English language, um, and actually I think there's a lot more out there for us to learn and you know part of using this novel is I, I hope to try and use it to, to learn from from yeah non-english speaking cultures and like you i think you know it's easy to uh, i think in my head i think to myself well it could be easy to just go to new zealand and america and stuff like that but i think you've you've really got an opportunity here to go really learn yeah from everywhere um and there's so much you can learn from every part of the world and, and every person in the world really it's interesting you talk about the hospitality of the Egyptian people because I know Egypt's Africa, but it's also very close to the Middle East. Every person I talk to that's been traveling anywhere, Egypt, Iran, Iraq, wherever, they all say that they're as welcome as they, as they come, you know, and, and the amount of people I, I mentioned at the last episodes with the guy who's been to every world twice, every country in the world twice, I haven't filmed with them yet. I'm filming with him in an hour or so. Um, I'm going to ask him this question, but the other people I've asked that have been to Iran, everyone says Iran is the friendliest country. And Egypt's up there. And all these countries in that area just seem to be like that. It just seems to be so family and, and homeliness driven, um, which is is lovely. I think in this country, you know, if you, you don't know your neighbour, you know? And so yeah, yeah. And, and that's the thing. I think it's that real sense of community. Um I really, yeah, I really, I really valued that, and I, I really appreciated, yeah, how how they hold on to those kind of, yeah, those hospitable values. Um, you know, you know, you welcome, you welcome the stranger, you you, you show them 
your culture and you, you you know and actually it's it's amazing because you know the diversity of the world is what makes it a beautiful place um with without that diversity it would all be very boring really oh 100 and i i didn't realize just how important that was until until i started traveling in august um yeah or traveling going elsewhere maybe not traveling but uh, you've came home uh, to to the UK now, Cormac. Though, and uh, yeah, found yourself a job. Um, maybe getting a wee bit more settled. How how was that? Because I always wouldn't bring vets on. Everyone seems to have this. We tried to find the job, and it was just try one here, try one there, try one there. Were you the first place you found, or have you tried a few places? I this was the. Uh, I'll be honest. That was just why we ended up here. I kind of just applied for this job here. Um, my partner's uh, Welsh. Um, um, had been working in London and we kind of just, yeah, I've seen this job. I said, oh, it's kind of, they'll kind of do as an area. Um, applied for it. Just so happened that uh, my two now bosses that are here are brothers from about 15 minutes away from me in, in Belfast. They're, they're from up down the way in County Antrim. It's only about 20 minutes road. Um, so... Yeah, it's a small world. There's a, a load of English farmers that have to put up with three Irish vets that they can just barely understand. Um, but yeah, they get better. Um, but yeah, I just I just apply for it. I mean, I think I think veterinaries they got to a point where actually there is such a, a dearth of farm vets really that I think in some ways as a vet you've got a you've got a, a good position because you kind of choose where you want to work really. Um, yeah, I think. Um, it might change going forward, but I think certainly the last 20 years has led to a real, real dearth of farm vets. There's a, a nice joke we always tell farmers the average vet has a shorter lifespan, like a shorter time in the profession than the average lactations of an area. Um, so, yeah, the average, I think the average vet lasts like three years in the profession. Honestly. Um, yeah, yeah. It's quite, I thought you were exaggerating. Jesus. No, no, yeah, I, 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 across the board, um, you know, whether that's moving into other rooms, and I think that's, that's the other thing, and that HP doesn't go to other rooms, and a lot of people are seeing that now, and maybe, maybe moving into other rooms, but yeah, actually, yeah, day-to-day that, yes, around three years, if I'm correct. That's insane. And for those English listeners, uh, that was an Irish man speaking English. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so you're working there now, uh, Cormac, and, and uh, uh, the thing I wanted to ask just before we get into Nuffield was um, the consultancy side. Is that is that yourself or is that for the for the company you work with? Uh, a bit of both. Um, yeah, um, I do a bit in house and I do a bit myself as well. Um and yeah, it's just going out and I guess well hopefully um you know trying to bring a bit more um focus on cost of production, um maximizing um use of forage, um and maximizing profitability is, is the end goal really. It's it's all about looking at forage, looking at finances and, and looking to the future really. Um and, and how do we, you know, how do I enable farm businesses to be sustainable going forward? And that sustainability is is economic, you know, social and environmental. They're all important. Um, and yeah, hopefully I can add a bit of value. That's that's the idea. Yeah, for sure. And 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 on that sort of line, um, 
Nuffield's came around, you've chosen to do a Nuffield scholarship. Before we even get into the topic uh, of it, Cormac, we've already mentioned the Nuffield scholar uh, earlier in Michael, but what, why, why Nuffield? What made you think, oh, this, this seems like a good thing to get involved in? Um, I, honestly, I didn't really know too much about it. I went to a year ago, um, and I had a client mention it, and I, I, don't, I don't even know how, I'd never really picked up on it, even on listening to the podcast. Kind of just glazed over it. Just never really thought too much about it. And then, yeah, I had a client mentioned that kind of did a bit of reading and then realized, you know, loads of these people that I was listening to as kind of people within industry all, all were enough for those scholars. Um, and I think, I guess for me, it's the, it's the opportunity to really delve into a topic of your choosing that you're passionate about. Um, and to really learn about, again, looking at how people do things around the world um, and what we can take away from that. Um, and, yeah, I'm quite I'm quite driven, I think. Ultimately, you know, I, I'd love to form myself to a certain extent at a point. Um, well, yeah, I would. Um, and I think part of it is a little bit selfish in that regard. Um and I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily, because um, yeah, it's going to be me doing most of it. But um, yeah, it, it's a real opportunity to, as I say, yeah, take a take a deep dive into a topic, um, and hopefully bring about some some real lasting change in the industry, and and hopefully affect some people's lives, and and, and create yeah create a vision for something that, that might work for some people, um, farming in yeah in the UK and Ireland. I hope you've kicked your feet up and got comfy and enjoying another fantastic episode of the R2Cast with another really interesting guest. I would just like to quickly take another second to plug the sponsors of the show today, The Scottish Farmer, and I would strongly advise you to go out and pick one up this week and see even more of the fantastic people that are in our industry. And tell us about that topic. Just go go in a bit more depth into the topic. Yeah, so essentially my topic is sustainable small ruminant dairy and um, creating a viable business model for the entrance. Um, and what that entails is it's kind of a two-parter to a certain extent. Um, so obviously small ruminants are looking at goats and sheep. Um, and it's, it's a little bit of how we create um, on-farm enterprises for uh, goat and sheep dairy enterprises that... Um, can be financially viable, um, can be environmentally viable, um, and can be socially viable. Um, I personally see a, a large opportunity for these to create um, a bit more wealth and, and sustainability within rural communities, particularly those on less favoured areas. Um, so if you look where most of the small rural dairy in Europe is, it's, you know, it's in what would be traditionally poor land, um, in Pyrenees and Alps, uh, on the French borders are in, in extensively in Greece and the islands, that sort of thing as well. Um, and we have, you know, there's large areas of Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland um, that are essentially really um, grade four and grade five agricultural land and not really amenable to much else other than livestock. Um, but the, the challenge we have is that, you know, the majority of beef and sheep enterprises in these areas are unviable without subsidy. So it's about how we create maybe livestock, an opportunity within livestock farming 
that could be financially viable. Um, and there are certain particularities to both, both goat and sheep down to essentially investigate and, and see where, how we can um, extrapolate um, into this country. Um, so it's, it's looking at, you know, how do we how do we take things like our ability to grow forage and use that as a comparative advantage? Um, and the second part really allows to, to both sheep and goat dairy, and it's about how we create sustainable supply chain models. Um, so historically, there was you know ups and downs within the goat dairy industry in this country, and as soon as processors started to go bust, then farms would go bust along with them, and there wasn't really a long term future for some of those farms. It was all very hit and miss um, and you know I don't think there's a point in creating a farming enterprise if there's no viable supply chain alongside it so it's looking at um, alternative supply chain models from kind of the mine industry um, but also you know from other dairy industries across the world um, so that we can retain more value for the farmers so it's shortening those supply chains um, a lot of the uh, wineries in Italy in particular, um, but also in Austria and France, um, have done a really good job of maintaining that value um, and cutting out kind of the steps within the supply chain that minimize the value to the primary producer. Um, and also looking at yeah, some large dairy cooperatives in some some most of the Mediterranean basin where a large proportion of current small ruminant dairy production is, um, but also in countries like uh, Mongolia and China as well. It's amazing how many Nuffield scholars managed to bring wine into their story so that they can go and see these wineries. You know, I, just, yeah. I think their business models had nothing to do with what's in the glass. No, no. Yeah, I was, I was, I was going to say, basically I've created a glorified tour where I go around and drink wine and cheese. That's the best thing, here, if I can get paid to travel the world, drink wine, neat cheese, I'm going to do it. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm pretty sure there's two other Nuffields now that's traveling the world and steak, so I don't feel as bad. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, why not? Tira, you mentioned a few countries out there, Cormac. Um, what's what's the sort of plan with Nuffield, though? Do you plan on t- ticking them all off? You mentioned Mongolia. Please tell me that's on the list. That would be so cool. Yeah, uh, so, so it, it is. Um, again, just always kind of wanted to go there and then came across um, just doing a bit of research that they've created a, a large dairy cooperative uh, in Inter- Inter- Mongolia where they're processing yak, sheep, goats, camels and horses milk um, and it's kind of to maintain, again it's to maintain producer value um, for kind of these small herding families uh, within Inter- Mongolia um, but alongside that um, China is now the world's largest sheep dairy producer um, so I think it would be remiss of me not to uh, pay a visit and have a look at that um, and then as I said most of the production is based in the Mediterranean basin so uh, Spain Italy, France, Greece um, Turkey um, and then if time allows um, possibly a trip out to New Zealand they have basically Went from a sheep dairy industry in twenty, I think it's twenty nineteen or twenty seventeen. It's worth twenty five million within three to four years. It's gone to an industry worth one hundred and twenty five million 
Um, so it's really expanding quite rapidly. Um, they they're targeting a billion pound industry, um, like they did with Kiwis basically thirty odd years ago. Um, and does you you're obviously focusing on dairy, but are you interested in in sort of obviously that's that's not it's normal with sheep. But are you interested in the meat side of goats as well, or is it purely dairy you're interested in? Yeah, so I, I do, I do like a lot of my work with previous um meat producers as well, um both sheep and goat, um and actually yeah, you know part of this is also looking at, you know, what are the outlets for you know the meat produced from that dairy supply chain, um and we know, you know, looking at uh, dairy beef supply chains that actually there's potential for dairy beef to potentially be more carbon efficient in the long run um, and also just from a from an economic viability you know in certain areas possibly more viable in subtler farming um, so it, yeah it's an outlet in terms of you know do you have specific lamb or kid finishers or do you have everything finished in site on, in house or do you have you know, different models of rear up to six weeks once a day milked um, or straight off of earth and artificially reared. It's looking at all these different options, really. Excellent. No, it's an interesting one. It's a really good one. Um, I think I've said that in fairness, but all the Nuffield ones I've done, it's not like Nuffield's taken in on them. doesn't sound very fun, that. Uh, I, you know, that's a terrible idea. How do you get that scholarship yeah. again? <laughs> <laughs> no, it sounds good. Mongo- is, it inner, is it Inner Mongolia in China? Is that right? Inner, Inner Mongolia is in China, um, but this is actually, I think, we're trying to look it up. My Mongolian geography, you'll be surprised to know, isn't great. <laughs> um, <laughs> but we're just looking up where it was. I think it's kind of on that border region. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess historically there would have been, you know, there was no border really. It would have moved with time, depending sure. on. The varying strengths of these empires, and um, yeah, yeah. No, here I look forward to reading about it, man. Goats have always interested me. We we use goats at home, um, <coughs> as adopted mothers, sort of like you know, as 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 you know, pet lamb mothers essentially. The fact you can sort of bring milk onto them without pregnancy is pretty pretty cool. So, yeah, yeah no, well, that's that, that nursing ability, and like you know, historically as well, I think. Part of the move away from it, you know, historically we would have drank a lot of sheep and goat's milk because that was, you know, that was the poor man's cow really back in the day. Um, I think there's a really old Irish proverb that was like goat's milk for liquid milk, uh, cows for butter, and sheep for cheese. Um, okay. uh, so yeah, like we, we historically we had all three, but um, yeah, it's just how do, how do we create a, a viable one for the 21st century? Yeah, that's a challenge. It'd be interesting to see what comes of that. Um, yeah, look forward to hearing that. Look forward to hearing it. And here, maybe we'll be talking in twenty years' time. We'll be doing a podcast. We're we'll speaking dairy. We normally mean cattle, but you know, so, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it'll be your name across it all. You know, it could be called dairy. It could just be called cormacking. Uh, yes. <laughs> no, I'm not bad. <laughs> Oh, good stuff. No, to your karma, it's always good to hear sort of what the plans are. Um, yeah. it's, uh, so, so thank you for coming on and saying that. Time does sort of fly by. 45 minutes have already went. 
Um, and uh, no, really, really looking forward to that. I'm sure a lot of the viewers will be quite interested. Um, however, there's two questions I ask everyone. I don't know if you've listened to any of the, the podcasts. I don't yeah. know if they know what the questions are about. I've been dreading this bit of it. Oh, you've already read. That's annoying. Like, I mean, it makes the first question okay because I hate the first question, which I say all the time because I, I hate answering it. Um, but yeah, the first question is, uh, uh, first off, um, where do you see yourself in five years? And the second one is, if you had any tips for people coming into agriculture, what would they be? Uh, yeah, so uh, addressing first one, I guess, um, you've got to create smart objectives, isn't it? Um, I'd, I'd love to be doing, you know, a bit more of the consultancy work than I'm doing currently. A little bit more of that um, would be nice um, and build on that. I would honestly like to be involved in the creation of a small ruminant dairy industry in this country and in whatever that entails. Um, honestly, would like to be milking 100 ewes. Um, <laughs> I've got to make it achievable to a certain degree. Um, and then, yeah, for people looking to get into industry, um, I think don't be afraid. Um just go for it. I, I saw practice with a really old vet who I really had a lot of time for. Uh, and I think I heard him through the grapevine and he may still be practicing. Um, Mum's a bit of a legend. Uh, does like AI for the show jumping horses for Ireland and everything. Uh, right. But he's like really old school. But first day I went out there, I remember in the asking where I was from. And uh, he just said, turn around when I said Belfast. And he said, good, no, no bad habits. Um and actually uh, I didn't really know what he meant at the time and he explained himself. He says, Listen, you're coming in fresh, um, you've got opportunity to learn things the right way, um, and, and to learn from good people. And you know, I think that's the thing, it's just go out, sit there, listen, take everything on board, um, don't be afraid to ask stupid questions and and really make a go of it because I think there's a real opportunity for, for people coming from outside the industry to bring fresh ideas um, and to bring invigoration into the industry. Um, you know, there, there's a lot lot to it that can, can be improved from, yeah, from people who don't have a background in the industry. So I think, yeah, just go for it, really. I used to hate when people, and in particular my mum, would say every day is a school day, but every day doesn't have to be a school day if you don't want it to be, but if you want it to be, it's going to be. You know, there's there's not a day goes by these days that I'm not like, oh, James, you know, that's the boiler going off for some reason. Um, that I don't sit back and I'm like, oh, geez, you know, like that's a new thing. And there's so, especially with this podcast, God, endless with this podcast. Um, but no, dear Cormac, thank you very much for your time. Brilliant. Appreciate. It. Thank so, you. Yeah, hope much. you've enjoyed it yourself. Hope you've enjoyed it yourself. Yeah. Uh, it's been an experience. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. I think we're gonna have a few more experiences like this. Yeah, maybe yeah, a couple yeah. of years. Ago. I, I'm glad. I'm glad I've got you to help me along that video editing, like you did on the first day on Thompson. <laughs> so I think I might have to get a media training at the same time. But yeah, no, thank you very much. No, at all, mate. It's been a pleasure, and you'll be charged a fine fee for such a such an offer. That <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, good stuff. Thanks for coming on, mate. And as for those of you listening, uh, that's been Cormac White. The next episode will be with Polly Hilton, uh, who's talking about cider in the UK. And I'm going to end this episode quite soon because all you can hear is the boiler that sits about a foot and a half away from me at the minute. Um, thank you for listening to number 167, and we'll see you for number 168.
See you then. I hope you've enjoyed another excellent episode of the R2 cast as much as I have, and I would just like to quickly thank our primary sponsors of the show today, Howden Rural, the new name for A-Plan Rural. If you follow Howden Rural on social media, you'll see the plethora of work that they do to support this sector, and it's been a pleasure to work alongside them so far, and long may it continue. For more information about them, be sure to check out howdeninsurance.co.uk forward slash rural. And I'll see you for the next episode.